The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. All right, Matthew 9, verses 1 to 13. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And we, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table, In the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Be seated. Who hatched the plan? (laughs) That wasn't a plan. No, no, no. When you're desperately in need, you don't stop and think that digging a hole in the roof of a stranger's house might be a bad idea. You just do it. So we did it. Now we pulled that operation off. That's a story for another day. (laughs) And it's a good one. (laughs) You you should have seen everybody's face when they were lowering me down, all sprawled out on that mat. At one point, I just looked at everybody, and I was just like, hello. (laughs) Everybody was shocked, except for Jesus. It's like he was expecting me. Jesus, he had this big smile on his face. He looked up at my friends, he looked at me, and he said these words. He said, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now listen, I wasn't being lowered down on a mat because I was exhausted from running a marathon. I was being lowered on a mat because my legs didn't work. So when he said he was gonna forgive my sins, I was thinking, sins? What about my legs? But I just didn't get it then. See, in saying he could forgive sins, Jesus was kind of, you know, he wasn't kind of saying it. He was, he was claiming to be God. Now, I don't have time to tell you everything the Pharisees told us we had to do to earn forgiveness. Needless to say, it'd be easier to move a mountain than to find forgiveness. And here, Jesus is just handing it out. Most everybody in that room had to be thinking the same thing. 
who does this guy think he is? Who does this guy think he is? You can't forgive sins if you're not God. And if you're not God, you can't do this. I went in there hoping that I could stand on my own two feet and I walked out free from sin. That's a miracle that doesn't just change me. That changes the world. Amen. Some time to pray together. Would you bow with me? <laughs> you've heard enough of this story that we're looking at this morning, and you've read it perhaps several times, and perhaps there's someone that you identify with in the story. Maybe it's the paralytic that been taught that he was that way because of his sin and he didn't deserve a place at the table like Kevin was talking about. Or perhaps it's uh, the Pharisees that uh, didn't think other people deserved a place at the table. Whatever you come to this morning with, um, I think the Lord wants to clarify his message and then bring assurance to us and to those who are his. And Heavenly Father, now we just pray that you would come, Holy Spirit of God, and just teach us and receive, help us to receive from you that which you want to give us today. Fresh bread, Lord, uh, to feed our souls and uh, clarify your word, O God. We know that one day you're gonna set all things right, Lord. And in the meantime, we pray, give us discernment to understand your ways in Jesus' name. Amen. I think what I liked about that skit, part of it anyway, was the fact that he had mentioned that Jesus didn't seem surprised. And indeed, um, there are so many times when we look at the Gospels and there was a lot of interruptions in the ministry of Jesus, wasn't there? In fact, when you really take a look at it, it almost seems like there was more interruptions in the Gospels in Jesus' life than there were these ministry plans that he was making and executing with his disciples. And so the po first point of this morning that I'd like to talk about is a theology of interruptions. Because I think we need one. Many of you, of course, have read the story of the Good Samaritan, the Jewish man that was beaten and lying on the road, and three people passed by, the first one a priest, and then a Levite, two very religious people of the same nationality as the one who was lying there, and then finally the Samaritan, a non-religious person in his society and also not from the same culture as the man that was laying there. The first two were too busy to stop and be interrupted. But the third one, the Samaritan, was 
went out of his way to be inconvenienced, and it cost him both time and money to minister to the man that was lying there. Jesus tells that story in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And that is the answer he gives. Let me read to you something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book called Life Together. He says, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by, preoccupied with our more important tasks. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think that they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. End of quote. I think that if we were to study a theology of interruptions well, we would see that in many cases, God's interruptions in our lives are divine appointments for some reason, often about something much bigger than just us, about much bigger things. And I share this at a time when we as a staff, pastoral staff, are in the middle of ministry planning for the coming year. always doing so recognizing that God is going to likely interrupt some of the things that we lay out as plans. In fact, the last three years have shown us that more than ever, hasn't they? What we see in Jesus, though, is this desire to be so in tune with the Heavenly Father, so discerning, so aware of Him, that He is then ready to help whatever person around Him is in need of a kingdom picture. So whatever person, wherever, whenever, God, the Son, Jesus, wanted to give them that in the moment, though his plans might have been otherwise. And so Jesus, to him, interruptions were God's God's invitations. I must confess right off the bat that I'm terrible at this. Um, I have a hard time uh, when interruptions come. Unless I'm procrastinating at something, then I love interruptions. Like this past Friday when a couple of guys named Carl and Rennie came, and they said they were shoveling snow, but they wanted coffee, what they wanted, you know. I I had no trouble being interrupted at that moment to have a coffee. I remember one time when Pat and I, our our first trip back to Bolivia after we'd come to Canada, And uh, we were teaching at a conference at the seminary, and um, in the middle of me teaching, uh, at the back of the room came in a former student and her husband, and they interrupted the entire conference, maybe 30 or 40 people sitting there, and there had been a motorcycle accident. Her brother had been shot while riding a motorcycle, and, and they needed people to donate blood at the local hospital in Cochabamba. Otherwise, he maybe would not make it. And so we stopped and, and uh, we prayed for the man and we prayed for the need. And, and then I carried on teaching while people would go to the back and if they were the right blood type, they, they said that they would go down to the hospital. By the end of me teaching that session, there were three men that had signed up and they were getting ready to go to the hospital to give blood. But I got to confess to you that in the moment, <laughs> I was annoyed with the interruption. Can you imagine? The Holy Spirit rebuked me immediately. 
He rebuked my pride. What, what is it in any one of us that thinks that our time is so important to not be interrupted by somebody else's time or priority? Well, I'm not saying here that Jesus is saying to us that we should allow any and every interruption in our lives and have no plans because Jesus didn't live that way. In fact, how many times do we see him rebuke an evil spirit and say, no, we're not doing that. And there was one time, especially when in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, Jesus' own mother and brothers come looking for him and he doesn't even go outside to give them time. So interruptions weren't always on the agenda of Jesus. And yet, so many times in the Gospels, it seemed like he welcomed the interruption. Like the scripture that we're looking at today of this man who was a paralytic. Let's set the context for this story just briefly. Jesus had just finished a cross-cultural ministry trip across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee where the Gentiles lived, the unclean country that we talked about last week. And he was accosted as soon as he got out of the boat by two men who were demonized. A legion of demons came against Jesus. And, and not only did he set that, those two men free and delivered them from the demons, but once the townspeople had found out and come to meet Jesus, instead of asking him to stay, worshiping him, acknowledging who he was, they begged him to leave their area. And then they went all the way back across the Sea of Galilee, and the Word of God says in Matthew 9-1 that Jesus is now in his hometown of Capernaum. And we don't know how much time has transpired, but, but I can imagine that he was tired. And we read in the Scripture that he was in his home, likely his own house, maybe a rented house, maybe it was Peter's house, we don't know. But a crowd had gathered into the home, and they were listening to Jesus teach. So full was the house that nobody could even get through the door to enter. And so, houses in Capernaum, at this time had thatched roofs made of reeds and branches sometimes held together with clay. And so it was easier for these men that were carrying their friend to go up on the roof and lower their friend down instead of try to get through the crowd. Mark and Luke give us more detail than Matthew. In Mark chapter 2 we read that four men carried the paralyzed man because of the house being so crowded and they went up on the roof removed a section, and proceeded to lower the man down ahead of Jesus where he was teaching. There was no way to be inconspicuous. <laughs> I mean, this attracted the attention of everybody. There might have been dust falling on them or grass, and, and all of the people were looking up, and they were amazed because they were probably one eye up and one eye at Jesus wondering what the teacher is going to do. And I can imagine that Jesus simply patiently waited for the man to be lowered right ahead of him onto the floor. I picture sort of a hammock-like structure with four cords tied to the corners. It was an interruption that was hard to ignore. We're going to come back to that interruption in a moment. But I want to describe another interruption in the text that is also a lesson for us. 
And it is the interruption that Jesus made in the life of this tax collector named Matthew. Now, maybe some of you are watching The Chosen, the scripture picture of someone's depiction and imagination of how the gospel of uh, what we're unfolding the life of Christ. I, I'm intrigued with how they present Matthew, the tax collector, this man with OCD. And however you want to imagine that, or however you take that series on TV, here's what Jesus said to Matthew, chapter 9, verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Because you see, God had been preparing Matthew to follow Jesus, to leave his old life behind, and to follow Jesus with a new life. And usually when there are big interruptions that God makes in our plans, he has prepared us for those interruptions. And often we don't see how he had been preparing us until we are further down the road and we look back and see how God had been preparing us. Maybe if you reflect on that lesson, you'd see it already in your life in some of the preparations that he has given you. Because interruptions are often God's appointments. And sometimes the time and the place is not convenient, and sometimes it's at work or play, and sometimes it's when you're stressed out, and sometimes it's when you're relaxing. It it doesn't really matter. What matters is you being attentive to God, the Father, and what he might be doing in the moment when you're interrupted. What matters is how it is that you will respond. Because it's usually not just about you, it's usually something much bigger. Do you have a theology of interruptions? That's the first question. And so let's move on now to the the next point that I'd like to share, and that is, there is in this scripture not only a theology of interruptions, but I see a theology of the very misinformed. Now, I want you to know I'm not saying it's a theology of the uninformed. I'm saying it's a theology of the misinformed. Perhaps some of you have read the Mark Twain quote, if you don't read the newspaper, you are uninformed. If you do read the newspaper, you are misinformed. And that goes for almost any media platform you want to choose. Yeah, well, I'm talking about misinformed theology, which, of course, we have many brands of it today as well. You see, in Jesus' day, there was the belief among the Jewish people, and many of them, that if you were sick or diseased or paralyzed, it was in many ways because of your own sin. And so there were many barriers for anybody that was uh, living with a disease or a paralysis or a sickness. Not only was there very little social assistance or equipment like wheelchairs and things like that, but there was also the social barrier that, that the disability brought. And then there was this stigma that it was because it was your own fault. It's your sin that caused this. It was the theology of Job's friends, wasn't it? The paralytic himself might have believed the disability was the fault of his own. I just read recently a story about a man in a church who who was sick because of of an illness. He was was struggling with a, a diabetic condition. And he had believed that God had rejected him. And every time he went to church, because his pastor in his church taught this misinformed theology, he just got more and more layers of guilt put upon him because he didn't believe that his faith was big enough 
that if he had more faith, he would be healed. There would be people, he said, that would come up to him in his church and hand him a verse or a hymn and say, maybe today you'll have enough faith to be healed. Can you imagine? Well, in this case, this man lived with that stigma. And uh, Jesus, in the, in the moment, turns the entire event into an opportunity to show that he has authority over the physical and over the spiritual realm. And so there were a, a need for them to see who he was and what he could do. So I'm going to identify three misinformed theologies. The first one being that sickness is always or never the result of sin. David Garland in his commentary writes this, Jesus has been sent to bring forgiveness to a sinful world. If one views disease as God's chastening rod, as they did in Jesus' day, then God offers forgiveness through Jesus and vanquishes those things that in the Old Testament prevented someone from coming into the presence of God. What was things like unclean spirits, unclean diseases, or sin itself. But Jesus opens up for God's reign to enter all spheres of life. Now, in one sense, we can say that all sickness, disease, or illness, or whatever, is the result of sin, S-I-N, capital S-I-N, the fall, Genesis 3. We can say that, indeed. But not all if it is, is related to personal sin. And if we study the scriptures, we learn that a, that a misinformed theology makes outlandish statements like that sickness is always or never the result of sin. But it's not true. It's just false. And the Bible contains many examples that teach otherwise. There are examples when people were sick and it was because of sin, and there were times when they were not sick because of sin, but they were having a problem. Like the man born blind in John chapter 9, Jesus clearly says it was neither this man nor his parents that he was born blind, but he was born blind so that the work of God might be made manifest in him. And there were times when sin did result in physical illness. Think about David in Psalm 32, when David has been covering up his sin, likely the sin with Bathsheba. He was covering it up. And he writes this, he says that his bones wasted away through his groaning all day long. And day and night God's hand was heavy upon him and his strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He was physically ill because of his sin, unconfessed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is teaching about the proper observance of the Lord's Supper, communion meal. And he says in that scripture that many of them were weak and ill and some had even died because they had been approaching the table of the Lord and trying to partake of it in an unworthy manner with unconfessed sin, trying to live a double life. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read of scriptures that talk about resisting sin while we live in this body and that if we belong to God, God disciplines those he loves as a good father should. Why would he do that? Why? Because that we might share in his holiness. That's what discipline is all about. So if we are sick and we've been consciously sinning in some area of our lives, it could be that God's discipline takes the form of an illness, a physical ailment. And why? Well, it's a severe mercy that God sends to draw us back to himself, to awaken us. And we see examples of that 
And we have heard testimony of that. And so I want to say, Christians, if you are sick and you come before the Lord in prayer and you have a soul-searching time and God's Spirit does not reveal anything that you have done that is displeasing to Him or haven't confessed it at least, then you must not beat yourself up. You must not listen to misinformed theology. You must not live under a cloud of condemnation or doubt. God loves you. And we must understand God has many ways of perfecting his children, and some of them involve physical suffering for no reason of our own. For no reason of our own. The redemption that Jesus Christ purchased at the cross does not include that we will always be free from sickness and ailment and cancer and arthritis and all kinds of problems. As long as we live in this body, there is no guarantee that he is going to heal you, whether through his own divine intervention or whether through medicine. As I said last week when we looked at Jesus healing the demonized men, we must approach illness also holistically, for God has made us physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, relational beings. We are a blend of body, soul, spirit, mind, emotion, and because sin has broken us and we are sick in our bodies in our souls in our emotions in our minds in our relationships then when we come to treat the brokenness we must think about what do we use to treat the brokenness in our souls in our bodies in our minds in our spirits we need discernment from god how to treat it and as i said if the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to see every problem as a nail. And so, indeed, to say that an ailment is always or never the result of sin is just plain wrong. Don't believe it? If you've got a book that teaches that, burn it. Get rid of anything that says that. It's heresy. Now, the reason that some commentators have said in this text that possibly the paralytic was suffering because of personal sin is because Jesus addresses the spiritual need of this man before he addresses the physical need. He says in verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And so some have concluded that because Jesus says something about sin first, that that's the reason for his paralysis. And I just don't think it washes. I just don't think that's evidence to suggest that this man was sick this way because of his sin. I disagree with those commentaries. And I love what Jesus says. He says, take heart. That's the first thing he says. I think this man entered into the room being lowered already been beaten up by bad theology, misinformed ideas that said it was because of his sin. And he had no hope that anything could happen. He believed the craziness that he'd been taught. And so Jesus says, take heart. I've got some good news for you. Let's move on to the next misinformed theology. Another brand is of bad theology is that the kind that says that God is more interested in the righteous on earth than sinners. 
This was the perspective of the scribes and Pharisees. They prided themselves in their own righteous standards. They felt that they were on God's A-team. Like the little child in the playground that uh, said to his friend that God didn't love him because he did bad things. That he wasn't being good. Wow. Where do we get the idea that God doesn't love based on that? Verse 11, Matthew, the tax collector, is converted and has a party. And um, these Pharisees are looking at what's going on, and, and, and they ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. It's in plain print here that Jesus is more about sinners than he is about those who think they're righteous. The good news of Jesus is that sinners can come to find forgiveness, that the same gospel teaches that the self-righteous need not apply. Don't bother going to God. The self-righteous have no place in his presence. Those who think that they are own, their own good life and good deeds are acceptable are, are sadly mistaken. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. D.L. Moody used to say that God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. And that's why the first lesson that Jesus taught back in chapter 5 of the Beatitudes was, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the next lesson he taught was, and blessed are you if you mourn over that poverty of spirit. That's good. And then he taught, and blessed are the meek, the attitude of that mournful poverty of spirit. And then finally, fourthly, he said, and blessed are you if you hunger and you thirst after righteousness that's not of your own. Because you're going to be satisfied. Jesus is going to satisfy you when you hunger and thirst after a righteousness not of your own because you know you are poor and a beggar and you, you, you are a sinner that needs Christ. That's good news. <clears throat> the only currency that you will find at the gate of heaven that will buy your way in is the Christ currency. If you come with your own self-righteousness, you, you will be rejected. So hear the gospel this morning, I, I, I pray. Hear the gospel. Hear it with fresh ears and receive it with a fresh heart to know that if you are acknowledging your sin and seeing Jesus Christ as the sin bearer, you are accepted by God. He's always more interested in those who come confessing their sin than anyone who comes comforted in their own righteousness. And then another misinformed theology I want to reference is a brand of teaching out there that says God is a taker and not a giver. There is a brand of theology that is being written and talked about that says that God is more of a taker than he is a giver. That real faith is more about giving to God than it is about receiving from God. It's wrong. It's heresy. Very subtle. People will not use the words that God is a taker, but they will teach it underhandedly. They think that genuine faith is more about them giving 
It's often a legalistic group of people in their conduct, often bound by rules, very little emphasis on grace. I need you to know that real faith causes us always to be astonished that God keeps on giving. (laughs) We're so amazed that God keeps on giving that we don't even think about making a sacrifice or giving back to God. It's just a natural overflow. I mean, we just sing from our hearts. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. That's my Savior's love for me. You see, see the, the, the believer in Jesus, the one who's received the grace, is so amazed at how God keeps on giving and giving and forgiving and forgiving that there's no time to think about what I'm giving. It's, it's so minuscule. God is not a taker. Let's maybe see if this stacks up with what the Scriptures teach. In Psalm 116, in verse 12, we read these words. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? So here is the psalmist saying, what will I give to the Lord for all that he has done? How will I repay the Lord? You know what he says? I will drop my water bottle. (laughs) I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that a great way to repay God? What will I render to the Lord for all that He has done for me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. That's the way to respond to God. Just draw more attention to the salvation that He keeps on giving you. Let's go to another scripture, Micah chapter 6 and verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What's my offering going to be? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Look at the depth of of reflection that this person is doing to somehow pay back God. And the answer comes back, no, 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 no. He says in verse 8, he has told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Do justice. Be fair. That's not giving anything back to God. Just be fair. Love mercy. When fairness comes against you, be willing to let go of fairness and be merciful. And then walk humbly with your God because you have received so much mercy from Him. Just, Just walk humbly with Him. There's no payback. There's no giving back to God. If we go back to the scene now in Matthew chapter 9, let's take a look at the attitude of the religious leaders. 
when they hear Jesus say, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, they're so concerned that he is blaspheming against God because no one can forgive sins. The only earthly authority that they knew of that could forgive sins or pronounce forgiveness of sins was the priest after certain sacrifices were given at the temple. The word forgive that Jesus uses here is also radically strong. It's, it means to send the sin away, to cast it out, to be never found again like the east is far from the west, you know, just to, to cast it away, to never be found again. That's what Jesus can do for your sin, with your sin, because he's God. But the religious leaders had made up their minds that he's not God. And they had no idea that maybe God was actually standing among them. So verse 6, Jesus responds, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I'll show you something you can see. Because anybody can say, I forgive your sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home in the midst of the whole crowd. The crowded house that did not part to let him in, now parted to let him out. And he went home believing. And verse 8 says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to this man. The only people in the room that weren't rejoicing were the Pharisees, the religious leaders, because they had not learned the lesson that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. They were so bound up by their man-made religion, their self-righteousness, their life of sacrifice for God. Oh, look at me. Next week we're going to talk about fasting. These were the men that would go out on the street corners and make their faces look sad because they were fasting. Look at what I'm doing for God. You see, self-righteousness blinds people to anybody else's need. And they couldn't rejoice with this man who had been bound by paralysis and now was set free. Isn't that sad? And so Jesus said to them, Go and learn. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. The last thing I want to draw your attention to is the lesson that we learned from Matthew. <clears throat> and it's uh, the conversion and the confession of Matthew. I love the way Kevin referenced it earlier in our service. The fact that Matthew includes his own testimony in his own gospel is very interesting. But the fact that he puts it where he does is also interesting. He places it right in the midst of a whole series of miraculous healings. <laughs> and you know why? Because he saw himself as being miraculously healed by Jesus. From a life that was so selfish and greedy and self-serving to a life that had purpose in living for his God-given purpose of following Christ. And so his conversion is incredible as it's placed here. And so he believed. He was ecstatic. And he had to tell somebody. And so he throws a party. And he has all of his friends come. I love it. All these other tax collectors and sinners that the religious leaders had no time for. He had to tell his sin-sick friends about Jesus. In fact, he, he wanted them to meet Jesus, and so he invited Jesus to come. And I can just see Jesus so very, very at home 
with these greedy guys, these tax collectors. And so, what does good theology do to a person? Matthew's a good example of what good theology does. So far, what have we looked at today? We've looked at a theology of interruptions. We've looked at some very misinformed theology. And now we're seeing a living example of good theology. What does it do? Number one, it makes you really grateful that God could forgive you, though you know you're a sinner. And secondly, it makes you want to tell the world that you love about this same Jesus. Gives you a burden for the lost and a boldness. And so that's what Matthew did. What would be the next steps for us as we consider the final part of this message? How do you respond to interruptions is one question I'd ask you to take home and think about. Maybe God's going to give you some interruptions this week and it'll just tweak your memory and you'll say, oh, what should I be doing in this moment? <laughs> what part of the story resonates with you most? Do you, do, you, do you relate? Do you identify with one of the four friends and you're trying to bring someone to Jesus? Do you relate to the paralytic himself, this man who had given up hope? But, but he's got some people in his life that are pointing him to Jesus. Do you relate to the religious leaders that didn't have much of a heart of mercy? And then, is there an area of your theology that needs recalibrating? Maybe something I've shared today just make, makes you want to say, I'm gonna, I want to think this through, I want to pray about it, I'm going to read more scripture. And then finally, is the gospel you live by more about receiving from God or giving to him? I hope you see that it's about receiving. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. And uh, we're just asking you, Lord, to penetrate deeply into the veneer of our faith. Sometimes our faith is not very deep. Sometimes our faith is misinformed. And God, we pray that you'll, you'll go deeper with us so that we might go deeper with you and uh, reveal to us by your Holy Spirit just one or two things that we're meant to take home. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen and amen. Lord, all of those things, because they are true, we can rest and know that you are with us and you are for us. You are walking alongside us. I thank you for your gift of salvation. We lift it up together this morning and draw attention to it. And may we continue to do that and to let that be our joy. And also, Lord, as we've just, just sung, with every breath, may we long to follow Jesus. And may it not be something that we feel we got to manufacture, just an outpouring of what you are doing in us. Let's just rest Help us to just rest and enjoy your spirit transforming us. May you bear much fruit in our lives and in this church for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. Have a blessed day, everybody.